Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. The 2020 MIPS Manual is out now on Amazon, and it's a great resource for practice administrators and clinicians who need to keep up with the changing healthcare laws. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're sharing our conversation with Linda Finkel, the president of Avia. Linda is focused on improving healthcare quality, patient safety, and costs. She collaborates with more than 50 health systems across the country to accelerate the adoption of game-changing technology in healthcare. We learned so much from her and think you will too. So let's get started. Linda, we are so grateful that we get to talk with you today. We liken healthcare and health IT to this big, complicated puzzle and that we all sort of hold a piece of it. And so if you wouldn't mind, could you please take a minute to introduce yourself and tell us about your journey and the piece of the healthcare or health IT puzzle that you hold? Our mission has remained unchanged since the founding of the company. And that is, how do you accelerate the transformation of healthcare in our country by helping health systems unlock the power of digital? We had an opportunity to experience uh, healthcare as the only industry that wasn't taking advantage of what was possible today. And so we think about our role as working with 50 health systems across the country, other providers, in some cases payers, to help them Um, achieve the most important strategic aims of healthcare, which is how do you make access better? How do you make uh, quality more consistent? How do you drive costs down and make it affordable? And how do you meet the evolving needs of uh, consumers and do that while keeping hospitals financially sustainable? And so we work with systems to unlock what digital can do for them. They work as a network, and oftentimes they collaborate, sometimes they compete, uh, but they all understand that they need to be good at 100 new capabilities that are digitally enabled, and they simply can't afford to take the time to experiment with each of them on their own. So we really look to have a tide lift all boats 
and move the industry forward in ways that we think really matter for, for patients and providers. My own journey to healthcare, I think about as really a two-phase career path. I largely knew from the kitchen table conversation growing up what it was I wanted to do, and that was I wanted to run something. Um, I just didn't know what the heck it was going to be. So it, at uh, 29, with my freshly minted uh, MBA and no management experience, I embarked on my uh, first startup. Suffice it to say, I had an opportunity to both start up a business and then turn around that business, uh, but I learned. And so next time I got much better, then I had a chance to turn around a second business that was not my own and created something from nothing. I then had a chance to take a $30 million business and in about three years, grow it to 90 million. I began to think, you know, this is where I need to play. And so from there, I had a chance to do a number of really interesting things, joined a, a founding leadership team to take a company public. I ran the largest operating unit. We then three and a half years later, took it private. I ran the merged entity and, and I found myself having had this really exciting 20-year run, running about $300 million in revenue in 280 locations in four countries with two young kids. And I just knew I needed to make a change. I had a child who needed something different. And so I made a decision to step out. And when I stepped back, I wanted that focus of my career to be something that mattered in a different way. So I had a couple of interesting uh, job offers, not in healthcare, um, each very interesting, but nothing that felt quite right. And then like many people in healthcare, I had a, a personal event with uh, my father, a dead seal and a can of gasoline, uh, which I'll save for another time. But that was my first exposure to healthcare. And so when an opportunity came my way to pursue a career in healthcare, I just knew that I needed to seize it despite the fact that I had a staggering lack of knowledge about what healthcare really was. And so I joined the population health business at Accretive Health. Uh, they had taken on a responsibility for providing all the infrastructure for an accountable care organization or a group of shared savings organizations that had accepted risk for 250,000 lives in 2010 uh, before people had really even understood what that meant and had an opportunity to step in and build that into an, an organization that had really tremendous results uh, in very early in value-based care, learned a lot of lessons. Uh, and for there, I pivoted to Avia, which was an idea whose I felt just had, whose time had come. It was a team of five. They had a bold aspiration of transforming care. They had five intrepid clients. Uh, this was just about five years ago. And, and a belief that it was possible for health systems to leverage digital in the way that every other industry could. And that we could help health systems get there faster to the benefit of all. So when you talk about lessons learned in leaping into healthcare, what are some of those lessons, whether they're from some of those earlier days, Linda, or more recently before making that you know, unique pivot? No. That what, what are some of the things you've carried with you that have continued to serve you through that ACO work and now at Avia? The first lesson is to pursue your passion. And if the work you choose is important enough, I think it just powers you through the challenges you face, the knowledge you don't have, the team you've not yet built, um, the setbacks along the way. 
I think the business of almost any kind is challenging, but healthcare is so complex that in many ways it was my commitment to making things better that kept me putting one foot across, you know, in front of the other uh, when things were really challenging. So I would say that the first lesson was clearly to pursue something you really believe in. I would say that for me, you know, one of the learnings throughout my career is that there is no substitute for leadership, that to be successful, running a business requires not that you be successful as an individual, but that you are able to attract, compel, motivate, drive, pick up, lead, direct, cry with, and then ultimately motivate a team of people to achieve something really important. And that that it is rarely about what you can achieve by yourself, but rather what it is that you can get accomplished with others. So those are probably the first two that crossed my mind. You're hitting a couple of things that really resonate with me. I as well got my MBA when I was 29 and had joined a startup, was employee number five, something that had grown <laughs> eventually to like 130 employees. And so was able to experience change on a level that like nobody can really train you for. You're just in it and you're surrounded by people that are passionate about what they're doing and really care. And I imagine you've worked your way up through the ranks with a, a skill set that like, of course you're educated and you have, you know, formal training, but to your point of having the ability to motivate or facilitate or be vulnerable with people, like there's something about leadership in those capacities that they don't necessarily teach in school. So can you talk a little bit about what it has been like for you kind of going from that transition and, you know, how big is the team at Avia? Like, and you know, being the leader, how have you taken those lessons and applied them to your team? It's such an interesting observation you make. I'm often asked, you know, how, not to diminish the value of an MBA, but, you know, how helpful was it? You know, is it something that I have to pursue in my career? And, and I feel so strongly that it is just one of a number of ways that you can build the insights, experiences, and perspective to help you over the course of your career, but it is just one of many. I would say that I learned as much about running a business, sitting at the table, listening to my father, who was always one step away from complete catastrophe running a business, navigate difficult client situations, difficult situations with his team. And I often believe that for me, those were the lessons that I really carried through. I also think he was a really authentic leader. And so I thought that's what leadership looked like. Gauged deeply uh, personally with his team. They laughed and celebrated. And I um, suspect that it really informed um, the leader that I have become. And, and part of that harkens back to a lesson I learned fresh out of business school, where I felt like I needed to act the part of a MBA and, and uh, bring a certain you know, professionalism to everything I did. And I had a group of colleagues provide feedback as part of a 360 that like, we don't feel like we really know her. Like she seems really smart and really interesting and we really like to get to know her, but who is she? And that was my wake up call that at the end of the day, people want to be working with people that they understand, they have shared values with, and that for me, I needed to be who I was. And so I would say that I decided there and then that 
if I succeeded as a leader, I wanted to succeed being the person that I am. So I think anybody who works with me would tell you that I do bring that. Like it or not, I am the same person at work that I am at home. And that for me was one of the most important lessons. It's not the only way to succeed, but was the only way I wanted to succeed. Did that answer your question, Joy? Yeah, actually. And it it helps me understand, well, one, it's how important it is to be authentic and have integrity. And if you don't really believe in what you're doing, then it's hard to convince anybody else to sort of follow you. And it also makes me kind of think about the relationship that I've had with my own father where, you know, I feel like the biggest lesson I learned from him was that I was bigger than my fear, that it was okay to be afraid of things, but you got to do them anyway. And uh, it's just interesting to hear, you know, what we learn at the kitchen table and end up bringing into our full-fledged careers. I couldn't agree more. Linda, I like how you articulated that, especially that personal, authentic aspect of things, because I think so many times, and you express this well in your journey, you're professionally connecting dots that you carry forward with you, especially when you're jumping industries or roles or leveling up in your career or going back to school, whatever it might be. But the importance of bringing that with you so people can even understand maybe even how you're arriving at your business decisions, I think makes for a stronger team. So I appreciate you sharing that. Can you tell us, at Avia, can you give us some real world examples of what you guys are doing or maybe how you've pivoted with these health systems, especially in in light of the pandemic, let's get back to how you're leveraging that now. And can you maybe distill some complexities and break down some great examples of what you all are doing with these health systems? Sure, I'd be delighted to. I mean, first, what I would say is that from our perspective, and I think the facts bear this out, that digital has proven itself to be the key lever that distinguishes between winners and losers and leaders and laggards in every single industry on virtually every single metric around growth and profitability. And healthcare is no different. I would focus on probably four areas. If you think about the challenges that health systems face in meeting consumer expectations, there is no choice but for them to leverage digital. Because if I'm a patient or I'm considering getting care, I want to have the exact same experience. I expect and I demand the same kind of experience that I get in every other aspect of my life. I want to be able to schedule when I want to schedule. I want to be able to find a physician when I want to find a physician. I want to get care how and when um, I get care. And so much of our work with health systems focuses around how do you meet changing consumer expectations? How do you make all those things possible between online AI-enabled symptom checkers that allow, uh, that inform a patient, help me understand how sick am I? What kind of provider do I need to see? How quickly do I need to get in to see them? And tools that allow me to see them the way I want to see them. I would be delighted to go to my physician's office or I have no interest or it's a hardship for me. You know, how can I do that virtually? We work with 35 of our systems very deeply around moving them down that consumer journey. The second big body of work for us, you know, not surprisingly, is how do I think about my own financial sustainability as a health system, which is critical for my ability to meet, you know, my mission. So whether I'm in a value-based care agreement or whether I'm still operating in a fee-for-service agreement, I've got to find ways to lower costs. 
And so we work with systems on, um, in fact, we're, we've launched a body of work called the 25% Challenge, which is focused specifically on how do you leverage AI-enabled or machine learning-enabled capabilities to reduce clinical administrative overhead, because we all know it's unsustainable. So cost becomes an area where we're doing a significant amount of work to help systems leverage digital. And the last, and, and maybe my favorite, is for every system in our network, meeting the needs of their vulnerable populations is at the heart of what they do. I don't think it's a surprise to yeah, anybody on this call that Medicaid roles will just explode as a result of COVID. And I feel so grateful that we are already well um, down the path on uh, a project with, that we do in conjunction with Andy Slavitt called the Medicaid Transformation Project. So we've been working with 27 health systems to find ways to leverage digital to provide improved opportunities for them to reach Medicaid and other at-risk populations to improve behavioral health, to address substance use disorder, to reach uh, moms and babies at risk, and do that in ways that drive real impact for patients, and do it in ways that health systems can scale and not just reach 1,000 patients, but 10,000 or 100,000 patients. So those will give you three current examples of work that we're doing at scale with members. And there is no silver bullet for any of them. And all of these are journeys. And so our commitment to our system is we're along for the ride. Um, we help you align around what problems you're looking to solve, prioritize those, uh, get your stakeholders aligned, understand the business case in addition to the mission, and then travel down that path with them until they have achieved the impact they desire. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but we wanted to let you know about a way you can support Hit Like a Girl podcast directly. We've partnered with Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, as a way for us to connect with our listeners and fans in a direct way and ask them to support us so we can continue creating more great content like this episode you're listening to. Patreon.com is not so much of a one-time contribution, but more like a subscription to provide support to independent creators like us. Patrons who pledge even just $2 a month give us the stability we need to continue producing podcast episodes. In return for your patronage, we're offering virtual high fives, personalized thank you notes, and even shout outs on our episodes. When you become a patron of Hit Like a Girl podcast, you're supporting our channel directly, so we won't be making podcast episodes for some viral audience or for ads. We're making them for you, our listeners. This allows us to focus on topics related to women, healthcare, and technology. With your support on Patreon.com, we're able to spend that time having meaningful conversations and doing more great work that can positively impact the lives of other women in healthcare and tech. So join us on Patreon.com and let's make something amazing together. Considering the state that we're in with the pandemic and everything, the project that you're working on and because you guys seem so well poised to kind of help things go digital, are there ways that you know, people that are not currently members, like what if people did want to get involved and support activities that you are are getting in to kind of supercharge them? Is there a way for lay people to do so? There is. What I didn't really share about Avia, and I, and I should, is that we are as mission-driven as we are results-oriented. And it is, uh, in many ways, we were purpose-built 
for a time just like this. And so we take that responsibility really seriously. In fact, through a partnership with the AHA, we have just sent out an assessment tool to 92% of the hospitals in the country. We're willing to make it available to anybody that allows them to look across all the capabilities that they're going to need to actually meet this crisis from the surge, and many of them are in it, some of them are coming down the back end of the surge, throughout the rolling recovery and a, a potential surge in the fall, through to capabilities that are going to be essential for them to really thrive in the new normal. And we've made that assessment tool through the AHA available to anybody who wants to understand what else do I need to be good at? What does good look like? And get started on building those capabilities. We feel like it's an opportunity for us to make a difference, certainly for our systems, but much more broadly. And we take that responsibility really seriously. Linda, our second question really talks about, and I'm sure you guys are doing some of this at Avi, but we want to know your personal wish. If money, resources, knew no bounds, and you could fix one thing in healthcare, health IT, what would it be and why? There's no magic wand for this one either. And if there was, there are a lot smarter or dedicated people who would have tackled it before, before me. But for me, there is no more burning call to action than social determinants of health. And if I didn't fully understand that before, my sensitivity is only heightened after the work we've done around the Medicaid Transformation Project. For me, it is a violation of everything I believe that the zip code of your birth determines your health and your health care. For me, it flies in the face of everything that I believe in around equity and fairness. So the 18-year discrepancy between a Chicagoan who lives three and a half miles down the road for me is just not something I can really live with. And so, you know, for me, if I could change one thing, I would help health systems understand the role they can play in tackling that problem. They can do it in ways that doesn't layer on more costs that make it even more difficult to reach at-risk populations, but they can do it in ways that are actually, that reduce the amounts, the money that they lose while they're meeting those individuals' needs within the four walls of the hospital. And so for me, it would be, my magic wand would help systems embrace what this work can really be. And if this was important before, what we've experienced with COVID only makes it more real. I'm sure you guys are all over these numbers, but if you haven't seen the most recent Chicago ones, you look at the numbers that show the Blacks account for more than two-thirds of the city's COVID-19 deaths, despite the fact that they only make up 30% of the city's population. That rate, six times higher than white, unacceptable. And so it's not that I'm not specifically focused on the, the ability for for uh, solution companies to integrate their offering in a way that creates a cohesive experience. But I think we got even bigger problems to solve. And so that's really what's what's uh, first to the forefront of my mind. No, I think that's perfectly fair for that wish. I mean, I think that we all wish that, especially right now when it's literally the public health at risk and, you know, COVID doesn't discriminate. And it's a shame that our healthcare access 
does. It's been really, it's been really difficult. And yet, you know, we've watched systems with whom we work and the frontline workers engage so deeply on behalf of their communities. It's both a moment that reminds you of these foundational disparities and yet also one where you see what healthcare workers do to meet the needs of anybody. And so for me, it's been an experience of high highs and, and low lows. You know, my hat goes off every day to what I see hospital partners are doing on behalf of their communities in a crisis. And my hope is that together we'll get out in front of the next one and have put some foundational uh, capabilities in, in position that will make the next crisis that much more easily managed. I, I know I'm not alone in, in feeling uh, a burn around that issue. No, absolutely not. It is so humbling just to see what people are going through and how much of themselves that they're putting out there for the care of their communities. In considering how we want to prepare for whatever is coming next, we are in a time where the news and keeping up to date on anything that's going on with healthcare is just flying by. It is like drinking from the fire hose like never before. So can you share with our listeners, how do you stay up to date? What do you read or listen to or what associations are you part of to help keep you on top of your game and make sure that you know, you've know you got the most relevant information to apply to your work? I fear I have a bias around how I like to get my news, which is provocative, direct, and conversational. Yeah, in many ways, that informs what I follow the most closely. It won't surprise you that I... Um, listening closely for anything Andy Slavitt shares on any form of media. Um, Andy is somebody, almost regardless of, of your politics, who says it like it is. And for me, that's what I want to hear. So I think about, like Andy, I think about Scott Galloway and No Mercy, No Malice, who brings a lens to the challenges and opportunities that we face in technology. For me, that grounds me. My guilty pleasure is to read the New York Times in hard copy, cover to cover on the weekend. And then we feel that now is just a time like no other. And so as a company, we are on a call every afternoon at 4.30, sharing what we've heard, what members are, what health systems are doing, aggregating trends, synthesizing insights. We make those available broadly through Avia Connect, which is a platform that we've created for uh, knowledge sharing and collaboration. But it is entirely informed by what we're hearing from um, 55, 54 health systems that are tackling these challenges in the front line. We look to the AHA, who has been a, a fantastic partner through this, journey for important updates. And for us, understanding what's happening in Washington, how regulation is changing, and what will not change back um, is very front and center for us. And so we've been lucky enough to have advisors who are deeply plugged in to those discussions that have 
been really important sources of, of information for us, um, including Vicky Wachino, who many of you may have known from her tenure as uh, head of Medicaid under Andy. You know, I have to admit, I am feeling tings of jealousy around your relationship with Andy. I have known to stalk him at conferences just to like stop to ask him to shake my hand and just say thank you for everything that he's done because he's been such an influential, you know, person in healthcare and in my own career. And if anybody hasn't heard his new podcast in the bubble, he produced it with his son, Zach, and it is really, really good to help you stay up to date. He basically shares the conversations that he's having with important influential people around the country from different perspectives, you know, from Mark Cuban to essentially Dr. Fauci and uh, feeling slightly jealous of the fact that you get to work with him on a regular basis. Just going to admit it. Well, somebody had asked me, you know, what has been one of the most surprising things that has come from my career in healthcare. And as somebody who started in a bold role at the epicenter of value-based care and accountable care with so little knowledge around Medicaid, Medicare, much less very foundational things about healthcare, uh, to find myself five years later with the opportunity to work so closely with Andy on this work has been one of the really magical surprises of my journey. So thank you. Yeah, I think we uh, we, we love the tell it like it is attitude. And uh, in our professional lives, Joy and I live and breathe the federal register and all of the policies <laughs> and drafts. So we have an appreciation for the fact that you're collaborating with those resources and how it informs, especially when you talk about the things that are evolving and hopefully, you know, parity right. pay around telehealth. And oh my God, there's right. so many things we can talk about that have changed and really have, the pandemic, fortunately and unfortunately, being a catalyst for this. So I hope more of that stays um, and that policy is, is forged for the long term. Linda, if people want to know more about you, they want to connect with Avia, and you shared with us how you guys are putting those resources out there, where do they find you? Where can they find Avia on social? Tell us how they can communicate with you. Well, you could easily find, uh, find us at aviahealthinnovation.com. We'll send you our Twitter information so you have that handy as well. I hope anybody who's interested in more won't hesitate to reach out and, and let us know how we can be of help. Thank you for taking the time and talking with us today. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was uh, an important conversation at an important time for me. I was delighted to hear of how you're thinking about the issues as well. Thank you. This has been a real treat. Thank you. And for me. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybird.com.